This is a Federal News Network podcast. For an agency that's only had seven confirmed secretaries, the Department of Homeland Security's area of responsibility has grown exponentially since its creation after the attacks of 9-11. To take a look back and get a sense of where the agency is now, we spoke to Ellen Gilmer, who is a senior reporter with Bloomberg Government. She recently had a chance to speak to several current and former DHS leaders to get some perspective. With the 20th anniversary, we wanted to do something that was um, kind of taking a broader look at these big questions of whether we're safer and we thought who better to ask than the people who are who were charged with running this department this whole department that was created in the wake of 9-11 to make the country safer and more resilient so we were able to reach out to people who you know were at the department back in the bush administration which was super helpful to learn from from them and kind of compare their perspective against um the that of people who were are there now or more recently so we'll get to the current administration uh, in a little bit, but looking back, were you able to learn anything or gauge anything from the former DHS leaders who, you know, included, you know, some people who were on the ground when the agency was created itself? Yeah, it was interesting. The biggest thing, the biggest theme that kind of came up as I talked to these different people was that almost everyone agrees the terrorism threat that we um faced on 9-11, that that threat has just evolved through the years. It's taken these different forms, different types of terrorism. And everybody mentioned domestic terrorism today as um, not everybody agreed it was our greatest threat, but most agreed that it was. It's just um, the the biggest issue the department is facing now um, on the terrorism front is this rise of domestic terrorism, mostly that fueled by white supremacy and other like hateful ideologies. Was there anything about the structure of the agency itself that seems to be almost hindering its ability now to go after the main thing that it was created for, which was stopping terrorist attacks? Um, Are there other functions that it's kind of absorbed over the years that officials told you were hindering their ability to do that? Most officials talked about the fact that DHS is just so huge um, it, it's like a quarter million employees. It's got all these different sub agencies. It's hard to wrangle. So when you need to adjust your mission or refine your approach to combating terrorism, it's just hard to turn the ship or, or even just like refine the approach because it's just such a huge operation. I mean, this is an agency that does you know, border, the border patrol, cybersecurity, FEMA, disaster response, like TSA, there's so much going on. All of those are an element of homeland security and and keeping us secure, but not all of those have a terrorism component, obviously. Um, So it can be, it can just be one person who's overseeing the whole agency has to really be able to mind all of those things at once um, without, you know, ever kind of losing sight of the counterterrorism mission. Yeah, it's crazy how just over a few years, you know, from a marketing standpoint, you think DHS, you used to think the you know, word association, the next word was terrorism. Now you say DHS and the next word is immigration. Yeah, I mean, immigration, there's ICE is part of DHS. Customs and Border Protection, Immigration Services, and it's just completely dominated the headlines since um, I joined the beat, which was just recently, but um, obviously in recent years, it's just, it's 
dominated the news um, and the DHS, like the head of DHS has in many respects, like across administrations become like the face of immigration policy, which isn't necessarily, um, you know, what they might have envisioned going into the job. I'm talking with Ellen Gilmer. She's a senior reporter with Bloomberg Government. Let's talk about another thing they've evolved to take over, which is the amount of cyber attacks that are occurring now. Um, DHS has once again found itself on the forefront of a new threat to America. Um, What did you learn on the cyber front of things? When we talk about emerging threats or new threats to the U.S., cyber is, you know, top among them. Uh, everybody mentioned cybersecurity as just a huge issue for the U.S., um, keeping our critical infrastructure secure. Uh, DHS grew a couple of years ago. It grew even more, and it added um, an agency that folks across the political spectrum are, are really quite um, committed to and excited about. Um, and it this um, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency just focuses on that issue, keeping our um, infrastructure secure. And they kind of uh, describe themselves as sort of quarterbacking the, uh, the federal uh, response um, to cyber attacks and the federal, you know, prevention of and um, making our systems more resilient to cyber attacks. So that's a big deal. And there's also actually a terrorism nexus because terrorists um, are savvy people um, or tend to be savvy people. There are a lot of, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of overlap now in the world of um, cyber crime and terrorism. There are group foreign groups mostly that are using ransomware attacks to fundraise. Um, and there are there's a potential for groups to increasingly use those kind of tools to just like wreak havoc, which is their goal. For the DHS secretary job, uh, since its level of importance has been upgraded over the years um, and they have to wear so many hats, uh, was there any talk about the actual structure of the agency itself? What is defined as too big. And obviously, maybe Congress is going to have to play a role here in in controlling who goes where. This is an issue that, yeah, Congress has been talking about this for a long time, reforming, overhauling DHS, uh, either spinning off some of its functions, uh, maybe putting the immigration function separate, putting the law enforcement function separate from the rest of the agency, or just adding some more leadership structure. DHS headquarters is actually quite small considering the size of the agency. So maybe adding a couple of uh, Senate confirmed positions up there that can really um, lead the oversight and leadership of some of these functions of the agency that can grow unwieldy. The issue is that Congress itself also is is kind of complicated in its own homeland security work. The jurisdiction over the agency is split among a bunch of different committees. And that fact makes it difficult to actually do move any legislation that would amount to a big overhaul of the agency. Yeah, I I, I know this may have not fallen under, it might be a little specific, but was the uh, St. Elizabeth's uh, campus brought up at all um, among the people you talked to? We didn't talk about the St. Elizabeth's campus. Uh, I think that's a good example, though. The St. Elizabeth's campus is uh, this huge, as you know, this huge campus um, used to be a hospital uh, in Washington, D.C., in the southeast corner of the city, uh, where DHS decided to move its headquarters many years ago. And it's this process that's been going on forever. And it's a beautiful campus. Uh, Headquarters is there. The Coast Guard is there. Some other 
parts of DHS are there and other parts are still far flung in other places inside DC and in Maryland and Virginia. So it's all super spread out still. And I think that's really emblematic of just the sprawling nature of DHS. I think one thing that is an important summary of sort of where we are 20 years after 9-11 in terms of safety and security of the nation is that we are so much less likely to experience an attack, the type and scale of 9-11. Our aviation security is just leaps and bounds ahead of where it was at the time. It's hard to imagine. We heard this from many uh, former DHS secretaries. It's really hard to imagine, almost impossible, that uh, a terrorist would you know, seize control of a commercial aircraft and weaponize it and, and cause mass destruction. So that's not where we are anymore in terms of what the big threats are. We've really um, improved a lot on that front. But as we discussed, the threats are always changing. They're always fluid. We've got cyber security threats. We've got domestic terrorism threats. And we've got an unstable situation in Afghanistan that could contribute to new threats um, down the road. So it's, it's a very dynamic situation. You have a giant agency in charge of kind of wrangling all of that in coordination with some other agencies who have a piece of it. So it's it's definitely something to watch, and it remains a question whether um, you know DHS can be nimble enough to address all of these threats as as they change and evolve uh, and arise over the years. Ellen Gilmer is a senior reporter for Bloomberg Government. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, 
it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I, I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I, I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture 
of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment, and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book, and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, And I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And and, uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, During my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.